Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. time for episode 60 of Sorallo Sports Talk, and I can't wait for this one to celebrate the 60th episode. One of my good friends and one of my favorite guests, Leger Doosable, former NFL D-lineman, current NFL analyst, will be joining the show, and I've got some special announcements to make in my final words, some really incredible life changes that I can't wait to share with everyone and to announce. And I wanted to use my monologue to talk about the incredible sports weekend, the incredible sports storylines that we have. Of course, right after I released episode 59, Tyreek Hill was traded from Kansas City to Miami. So much NFL movement, so many signings, trades. It's the craziest NFL offseason of all time. I wanted to get to that. I wanted to get to Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer, a couple of Cy Young Award winners, pitching in the Mets-Cardinals spring training game just the other day. DeGrom going the first three innings, Scherzer closing it out in the last six. That seemed like a blast, a great storyline to talk about. That one-two punch, the best one-two punch in baseball going into the season. I wanted to get to the final four. To the incredible run of the St. Peter's Peacocks, the first and only 15 seed ever to make it to the Elite Eight. The Duke-North Carolina storybook Final Four matchup we have to round out this completely, entirely Blue Blood Final Four. I wanted to get to it all. But instead, we are opening the 60th episode of Sorallo Sports Talk talking about the Oscars and about Will freaking Smith. I mean, I am stunned, right? So my Sunday was pretty normal. I watched both Final Four games. Of course, both were blowouts. I, I bet both underdogs, Miami and St. Peter's, not a good day. And I wanted to unwind, enjoy the rest of my Sunday night, and I picked a new Netflix show to watch. So I'm watching Pieces of Her on Netflix, which I'm already, there's eight episodes, and, and one night I watched four of them. I'm obsessed. I, I can't, cannot look away from the screen. This show is absolutely incredible. I'll probably watch another two episodes tonight. By the time you're hearing this, I'll I'll be like 75% of the way done with the show. It's unreal. The show is a complete and utter mindfuck. And all of a sudden, my phone, Twitter, starts going off nonstop about the Oscars. So I'm like, all right, I'll pause this for two seconds. You know, I'll go see who cursed, who had a nip slip, what the hell happened, and then I'll get back to my show. And I see that Will Smith, of all people in the world, Will Smith freaking Smith socked Chris Rock went up on the stage after a joke and punched although I mean let's call it what it is it was an open hand hit it was an open hand slap so he walks up there and he hits Chris Rock in the jaw and I was stunned you know first off I was sad because I love Will Smith I love Chris Rock Chris Rock is probably my second favorite comedian behind maybe only Sebastian Maniscalco absolutely love him and Will Smith is one of my favorite actors of all time I actually you know and I'm not a big Oscars person I'm not gonna lie and say I was gonna watch the whole night I was gonna tune in 
for the speech because I couldn't wait that Will Smith was finally getting an Oscar that he was probably, you know, going to win Best Actor, which of course he ended up winning. And, you know, now it doesn't matter at all. I, I mean, totally forget that aspect of the night. No one cares about him finally winning an Oscar, winning Best Actor for his incredible performance in, in King Richard. Now instead, I see one of my favorite actors, one of the few people in Hollywood that I actually look up to as a person, not just, you know, for their talent in their career. As a person, I always thought Will Smith was, you know, an excellent role model, and and I see this crap. I mean, Will fucking Smith, of all people. I, I just cursed more than Will Smith ever did in any of his damn rap songs, right? I, I mean, this is the guy who made chart-topping hit rap songs without cursing. Like, n no one else can do that. F forget, you know, a verse. No rappers nowadays can go two, three lines without cursing. Not that I care. I listen to the music. I, you know, it doesn't bother me. But I'm saying, like, Will Smith was the clean guy. He was the family guy. And to see what he did. And look, you can unpack a whole lot. And I'm going to ask Leger about this. I want his take on it because he was very active on Oscar's Twitter last night after this all went down. You can unpack a whole lot about what happened and Chris Rock, a man making a joke about another man's wife. First off, it needs to be said that's what comedians do. Hello? Hello? I did not walk up to Will Smith on the street and say... Yo, something, you know, your, your wife's a baldy. You're, you're married to G.I. Jane. I, that's not me on the street saying that to him. If it was, hit me, I deserve it. This is a comedian hosting the Oscars, a man whose job it is, especially if you're sitting in the front few rows, forget the Oscars, any comedy show, you're a target, right? L like, it's like when you, you know, stand on a bridge in an amusement park where the log flume's coming and it's like, warning, splash zone. Like, you're in the splash zone of the comedian if you're sitting in the front few rows. You are going to be noticed by him or her, and you are going to be the butt of a joke or two. And for Will, who, by the way, laughed at the joke originally, right? Cameras cut to him and Jada right away when Chris Rock made the G.I. Jane joke. Will was laughing, and then you saw Jada in her face just turn completely sour. And then all of a sudden, Will gets up and just acts totally out of pocket. I mean, he's, he's dead in the wrong. I'm sorry, I, you know, I don't buy the justification of he was a man protecting his wife because there was no malice. It wasn't me on the street or some random person in a random setting insulting her. It was a comedian performing a bit, making a joke. He didn't call her ugly. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't say she looked like a cancer patient. And, and that's another big issue that I have with this. You know, anyone who knows the story, and I'm sure by now everyone knows what she has, Jada Pinkett Smith has alopecia, right? This is a... I don't even want to use the term disease because, you know, there, there's no terminal illness associated with it, right? And before anyone says, who the hell am I to speak about this? My stepbrother has alopecia. All right, so someone very close to me in my life has alopecia and he's the first one to joke about it all the time. Like, she doesn't have cancer. It's not like she's going through chemo and had to shave her head. It's freaking alopecia. Like, you know, Charlie Villanueva had it, the longtime NBA player. He got brutalized for it, tortured for it. I mean, other NBA players, Kevin Garnett, said some horrendous things to him. That was legitimate. That that was insulting. Like, he got tortured. This was a comedian making a joke. And for Will to react the way he did, and then, in my opinion, double down and make it worse in his speech by calling himself a, you know, protector and comparing himself and what he did to Richard Williams, nothing he did was worthy of a comparison to Richard Williams, right? I, I mean, and that, to me, what doubled down and made it even worse 
was that it took away from Serena Williams' night. It took away from Venus Williams' night. Like, you know, you had two incredible women, two incredible athletes, two incredible black women who had their moment taken away from them because of a selfish, stupid, out-of-pocket action by Will Smith. Like, you know, this night was all about black excellence, in my opinion. Like, Serena Williams and Venus Williams, their story front and center. A black man winning the Oscar for portraying their story. Like, Will Smith was a part of the black excellence that was supposed to be, you know, on display at the Oscars. You had Will Packard, who produced a hell of a show, and no one's talking about what what I thought was the best produced Oscars in over a decade. Instead, they're talking about that one moment that takes away from it. I mean, Chris Rock, you know, a, a, a black Oscars host who is an incredible comedian and actor and one of the funniest and from everything I've heard, also nicest people in the world. Like, this was a night of black excellence. You had the actress from West Side Story, and excuse me for forgetting her name, but Afro-Latina, also part of the LGBTQ community. I mean, an incredible night for representation and excellence, and Will Smith took away from it all. That, that to me, is the biggest problem. It's like, you know, and then on that speech, the tears just seemed like crocodile tears. Like, you know, you're giving out the apologies to the Academy. And what about the apology to Chris? Like, be a human at that point. You know, you were the one who acted out of pocket. He was doing his job. He made a joke. I don't care if you don't like him from a joke he made six years ago saying Jada, you know, oh, you're boycotting the Oscars. Well, you weren't invited. Again, it's a joke and it's harmless. Like, you're going to react harsher to Chris Rock making a joke as a paid comedian than you reacted to the guy who had an affair with your wife, who almost broke up your marriage, who slept with you. Like, hello? Hello? Where, where was where was him popping August Alsina in the face? That was warranted. And and instead they go on a talk show and, and talk about their feelings when, when she had an affair and he should have cracked August Alsina? That you can talk out. But Chris Rock, you're gonna hit. That's where you draw the line. G.I. Jane, give me a break. It, it sucks because I, I love Will Smith have loved him my entire life, have always looked up to him, talent aside, just thought, you know, he's one of the few people in Hollywood who is genuine, down to the bone, good person, great guy to look up to. This sucked. This really sucked. Chris Rock, on the other hand, deserves all the credit in the world because Chris Rock was the ultimate consummate professional. I mean, the way he handled it, you know, making a joke, recovering quickly. I I mean, you know, Chris Rock could have called security immediately, he could have fought back, he could have made this a bigger thing, and this was all de-escalated because of Chris Rock, which, you know, I think tells you all you need to know about Chris Rock and just the the good person he is, but the Oscars, man, can't make that shit up. We're here on a sports show talking about the Oscars in a weekend where a 15 seed just made it to the Elite Eight, and you know what, let's talk about that 15 seed. Because you've got the Blue Bloods in the Final Four. You've got Duke. You've got North Carolina. You've got Kansas and Villanova. That's great, right? We've probably narrowed this down to the four best basketball teams remaining. The Cinderellas are done. I know North Carolina was an eight seed, but they're a Blue Blood. The Cinderellas are gone. Let's talk about St. Peter's. You want to talk about Black Excellence? Shaheen Holloway, the job he did with those young men was absolutely sensational. You know, I thought... One of the best signs uh, that I saw of Shaheen Holloway's coaching ability and the kind of leader he is was when things were getting tough in the North Carolina game, 
the cameras shot over to him and it was it was great that the announcers pointed this out because he looked upset and he was yelling and a lot of people home could be like oh his team's down big they're finally facing some adversity in the tournament he's complaining and bitching and moaning to the refs and the announcer pointed it out and I had already had a hunch that this is what was going on Shaheen Holloway when he gets animated like that he doesn't yell at the officials right he's not a coach who barks and whines and complains at officials he's yelling at his guys and not in a dehumanizing, you know, bad way. He just, he's letting his guys know, hey, this deficit that we're facing, this is on you, right? Don't look for calls. Don't look to be bailed out. Work harder. Be better. He, to me, is the exact coach that, as a parent, you want to send your kid, when you're entrusting another grown man to look after, to mentor, to, you know, help your kid grow up from 18 to 21 from a, you know, a mature teenager, if you will, to a man, Shaheen Holloway is the guy you want to send your kid to because your kid's going to go to him and not only learn basketball skills, but also learn life skills, learn accountability, learn work ethic. I I mean, look, you know, by the time this episode airs, I'm recording it Monday evening. It's going to air Tuesday morning. There very well may be a done deal that Shaheen Holloway is already at Seton Hall by now. If not, probably won't, you know, won't last later than Wednesday of this week. But he is just the incredible ultimate coach that you would want in my opinion your kid to play for and the kind of guy that's just so easy to root for I mean going back to his playing days and not everyone knew him he was a hell of a player he was a McDonald's All-American shared a court with Kobe in that game I believe in 97 I I mean this guy is just that whole tournament run everything that Shaheen Holloway did that is the perfect depiction of black excellence because he was absolutely phenomenal We had a great tournament run, you know, can't be sad, can't be disappointed, can't be bitter that St. Peter's is out. Was I rooting for them against North Carolina? Yeah, like crazy. I wanted them to win the whole thing. But now we're left with Duke, North Carolina, Nova, Kansas. Look, Bill Self, Jay Wright, both making their fourth final four appearances. Jay Wright looking for national title number three. Bill Self, I believe, looking for number two. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. Villanova worries me because I think, you know, Villanova would have the advantage in this game if Justin Moore's Achilles didn't decide to pop with about 15 seconds left against Houston. I mean, Nova was already running a six-man rotation, right? Maybe they have a seventh guy, Archie Diakono's younger brother, who would get like two minutes. But Nova ran a six-man rotation, and now they're playing with five. And Kansas only plays seven, so I think Nova could run out six on seven, control the pace of play, win if they hit their threes. Five on seven? That is a tall, tall task. And I just don't know if Nova can do it. I mean, no disrespect to any of those guys. Jay Wright is one of the best coaches, if not the best coach in the country at this point, in my opinion. But five on seven, and a guy you're missing is, you know, your point guard, a key cog in Justin Moore. I don't know. I don't know if Nova's going to be able to get by Kansas just on account of running out of guys and running out of gas at this point, which really sucks that you make it all the way down to the final four. And that's what it comes down to is an injury at the very end of the Elite Eight. God, it almost reminds me of the St. Bonaventure Bonnies in 1970. And yes, you know, I had to tie them in here because we're talking about the Final Four. The Bonnies are in the NIT Final Four. I will be at that game tonight at Madison Square Garden, and I cannot wait. Remember the Bonnies, 1970 Final Four. Bob Lanier goes down in the Elite Eight against who else but Villanova. Bonnies survive Villanova, win in the Elite Eight, and then go down because they have no one at that point who can guard Artis Gilmore. And Jacksonville, the Bonnies that year were known as the Iron Man Five. They played five guys who played almost the entire 40 minutes every single game. And they missed a key player. 
went down in the final four. It could be eerily similar here for Nova. I'm not comparing Justin Moore to the Hall of Famer that Bob Lanier is, but, you know, starting point guard on a team that plays six guys, he's, you know, almost equally as important to his team as Lanier was back in the 70s, and this could really burn Nova in the final four. But what's the game everyone's waiting for, right? Let's call it what it is. I might love Villanova. I might be rooting for Villanova to win it all at this point because I'm a Big East guy. I'm a Jay Wright guy. Started over at Hofstra. I'm from Long Island. I love Villanova. We all want Duke, North Carolina. That's what we're all waiting for. Coach K, Hubert Davis replacing Roy Williams. And for the first time ever, it'll be the 258th meeting between these schools. The first time they meet in the NCAA tournament. This is going to be fantastic. I mean, for Coach K, this can be the ultimate redemption. He lost his last home game at Cameron Indoor Stadium against North Carolina. They ended his ACC regular season, his ACC conference coaching career, and now he gets a rematch against them in the final four for the right to go to a championship in his final season. This A win here and then a win on Monday night would be the ultimate storybook ending. But when people look back on it, instead of looking back on Monday night, they'll probably look back on this win more because of the rivalry, because of the hatred, the bitterness, because of what it means, and because of how UNC ended his regular season career and his Cameron indoor career. On North Carolina, though, on the other hand, for the Tar Heels, it's almost like you're playing with house money. And I know that, you know, no one wants to get to the Final Four and lose it. No one's going to be like, ah, you know, They're not St. Peter's in the sense that St. Peter's was truly playing with house money in the Elite Eight. They look back, they shouldn't feel bad for a second because they didn't have any business beating Kentucky. They beat Kentucky, Murray State, Purdue. Totally different version of the term house money here. But when you look at them, they were an eight seed, right? They were expected. They should have lost to Baylor. They knocked off the defending national champs. Then they knocked off UCLA, a team who was in the Final Four a year ago. North Carolina has already had a successful tournament. Hubert Davis will be back. They will have guys back, right? So this is totally different in the sense that for Duke and Coach K, this is the last shot. And North Carolina already knocked him off in his final game at Cameron Indoor. They already put a small, tiny stain, a little blemish on his resume, on his final season, his storybook ending. So for UNC... The talk is not going to be if they lose that they came up short, that they were uh, disappointing. If they lose, all the talk is Duke, Coach K, storybook ending, right? It's not like, oh, UNC blew it. If Duke loses, the talk is UNC ended his Cameron Indoor career and then his actual career. All the pressure is on Coach K and the Duke Blue Devils, not Hubert Davis and the North Carolina Tar Heels. And that's why North Carolina is going to win this game. Because North Carolina is playing loosey-goosey. They're playing tough. I mean, look, Duke has shot the lights out of the basketball this tournament. They have shot over 50% every single game. Coach K has coached his ass off. Let's give him some credit here, right? I'm not a Coach K fan. You all know that. Texas Tech, they go down 10-2 early. Coach K calls timeout. Duke responds. Arkansas. Arkansas cut it from 53-41. to to 53 to 48. Coach K called that timeout. Same thing he did against Texas Tech. I turned to who I was watching the game with. I said, this one's over. What did Duke do? They answered with a 19 to 6 run. The coaching's been impeccable. The shooting has been impeccable. 
but it's the final four now. They're two games away from a title. It's Coach K's last season. Survive in advance, quite literally. You don't survive, forget advancing. Your career is over, Mike Krzyzewski. Hubert Davis is a first-year coach. He is playing with house money. North Carolina is tough. You've got guys stepping up that you would not expect. You've got a tough big man in Armando Baycott, who I think is the toughest big guy in the country. I mean, he's a bull down low. You know, I think you put in a freshman like Bancaro on him, he's going to bully him. Baycott's playing bully ball right now. And it doesn't matter who his matchup is. Williams, Bancaro, he's going to be a bruiser in this one. I think North Carolina is going to get the job done again. So I'm calling a North Carolina-Kansas national championship game. And I'm picking the Jayhawks on my third revamped bracket. I know it means nothing at this point. I'm saying that Bill Self and the Jayhawks cut down the nets in New Orleans in a week on Monday night. When we return, my man Leger Doosable joins the show. We're talking NFL free agency, but we're talking some Oscars. That's right. I'm going to get his take on the Will Smith-Chris Rock entanglement And then we'll dive into some football. So stick with me, Joe Serralo, right here on Serralo Sports Talk. We're back here on the 60th episode of Serralo Sports Talk. And who else would I have as my special guest on episode 60 than former NFL player, current NFL, and more specifically Jets analyst, my good friend, Lejay Duzabo. Lejay, thank you so much for joining the show. Of course, Joe Moder, number 60, man, the big 6-0. So it's an honor to be on your 60th show. Thank you so much, man. It's great to have you. And, you know, there's so much going on in the NFL that I couldn't wait to talk about. But I think we've got to pivot, uh, given the timing of everything right now. I saw you were active on Oscars Twitter last night. Dude, what the hell was going through your mind when Will got up there and smacked Chris? I I don't know what was going through my mind when it when it happened the first time. I didn't actually see it live. Um, I had been watching the Oscars, but I've been flipping back, watching a few different things. And then I just saw random tweets going, did I just see what I thought I saw? So obviously I switched back to the Oscars, right? And then we saw all the tweets that came out, you know, with the video footage, I believe in Asia and maybe even, I want to say Australia, right? Yeah. Um, Because the delay's a little different there. So they actually played it all the way through without cutting what happened after the slap happened. So uh, I was mystified again. I think like everybody else, nobody expected that, especially out of a guy like Will Smith, um, whose character has always been never questioned. Um, everybody loves him as a lovable guy um, to what we've seen through the camera lens. Um, again, people don't know actors personally, so you never know what's going through somebody's head. And I never am one to, to say how a person should react to a situation because you never know exactly what's going through that person's head so i'd never judge people on how they react but i think that was i think he went a bit far with that right um granted again talking about somebody's wife uh you don't know how a person's gonna react but i think that was the thing that kind of mystified me or had me kind of confused was that he seemed like he was laughing now a lot of people laughing right and we've seen that there's actually been a little bit of history between chris rock and jada and will before when chris was hosting the oscars i know he kind of went at them a little tough about jada boycotting the oscars um, but Will, having the the comedian background, um, I would think you know that everybody's a target at the Oscars, right? And I'm not going to tell you how to protect your wife or how to how to protect Black women because, again, you never know how somebody eternally is dealing with some of the situations that's going on and how they feel. So at the time, maybe Will thought that was the best solution. I don't think you should ever put your hands on anybody. 
Um, and I think Chris Rock did a, an amazing job of having restraint and, and, and not, you know, retaliate, retaliating in that situation and being able to be a professional and continue doing his job, you know, presenting at the Oscars. But yeah, I, I was, I was mystified by that situation, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not a good look for, for Will. It's not a good look for Chris. Uh, it's not a good look for anybody. The Oscars, Will Packer, the first, you know, black producer to produce the Oscars, like all that is overshadowed by what happened in the altercation between Will Smith and Chris Rock. And it sucks because it was a great, great night. You know, Will ends up winning the Oscar for leading role as a male. Again, Will Packer, first black producer to produce the Oscars. And like all that kind of got overshadowed by that one event. And it just sucks. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you brought up Will Packard because that to me really hits the nail on the head. It's like, this was such a night of black excellence. Will Smith winning best actor, Will Packard producing the Oscars. And then also, I felt for Serena and Venus, you know, I was hundred yeah, percent and it took away from their night too. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, yeah. Was, Cause even when he won the award, it was, it was kind of like people were still had that in the back of their head, the altercation that happened and just a look on Serena and, and Venus's face. Um, and Will had an amazing speech, but it, they, I think they were still mystified about what kind of happened, the situation that happened earlier in the award ceremony. So it, it just sucked that that kind of overshadowed, like you said, the, the black excellence that was on display last night at the Oscars, that one event interaction between Chris Rock and Will Smith kind of overshadowed that. And, and, and it sucks that that happened. Yeah. And I hope Will Packer gets invited back next year because I rarely ever watch the Oscars. And I thought mm -hmm. last night was probably the best produced show I've, I can at least remember seeing. He did an incredible 100%. job. 100%. He did a really good job last night. Hey, let's tie this into football a little bit, because this has been probably the craziest offseason thus far that we can remember between mm. signings, trades. What was the moment in NFL free agency? Could be a signing, could be a trade mm. that shocked you the same way Will Smith slap shocked you. <laughs> uh, that's that's a big shock. I would have <laughs> to say that's it's, it's probably a tie right between the Devontae Adams trade and the Tyreek Hill trade. I mean, usually and I, I've been going on Twitter on this rant for a long time. Usually number one receivers aren't available via trade, via free agency. Like teams don't let their number one guy hit free agency. So to have two guys, uh, you know, Devontae being tagged and him saying he's not coming out and playing on the tag, for him to be moved, especially after Aaron Rodgers decided to sign his extension, and then Tyreek Hill, like what he's meant to that offense, um, his speed alone terrifies defenses so like the Kansas City Chiefs are gonna have to play a different brand of football which for a long time people have saying they needed to change up their philosophy anyway right they really fixed the offensive line maybe they'll be a little bit more balanced as far as running the football now right because now they have somebody that can protect Patrick Mahomes and they can get physical at the line of scrimmage and run the football but I think those two trades in this offseason kind of put this free agency frenzy over the top because again, number one receivers usually don't hit free agency. Like teams aren't willing to let people go. And I, and I love Jet Nation, but they're optimistically ignorant at times when it comes to like being able to get top tier guys. And I tell these guys, and this is not a shot at them, like you can't live in a fairy tale world. Like you, you're thinking about, you know, maybe trading for a DK Metcalf, you know, AJ Brown, Debo Samuels. Well, those guys aren't going to be available for teams to get because they're their number one guy on that team and they're young. They're only going into year four. So you don't just, you know, relinquish talented players like that. This was the exception this one year in free agency. And 
both of those receivers were on year three. Uh, they were on their third contract. So it's a little different, right? So they've already had to. They've had their rookie contract. They've already been read up. Now they're in their third contract where a guy like DK Metcalf, AJ, but they're still in their rookie deals. So those teams are not training those guys. And if they did, it would be an enormous amount of draft capital, plus probably player swapping to get that done. So I would, I just like, this is why I would try to tell fans, like, do not expect like, your true number one guys usually don't hit for agency. Right. And there's a reason if they do, it's because maybe their relationship has just gotten to a point where, you know, they have to split amicably. And I think that's what it was in Devontae Adams case. I think after Christian Kirk got paid and Devontae Adams got paid in Kansas city, waited too long to pay Tyreek Hill. And he's got numbers very similar to, to Devontae Adams. It's like, well, I want to get paid when he's getting paid because I deserve to get paid when he's getting paid. And I'm younger than Devontae Adams. So, like, their hands were tied. They kind of had to trade him or pay him. And but they're paying Travis Kelsey and already Patrick Mahomes. Like, it was not going to be feasible for them to do that. But ultimately, I, I just think it's going to change Kansas City's office. I don't know if it's going to be for the better. But for a long time, I think they needed to change their philosophy either way. Yeah, it's weird looking at them because, you know, going into the past couple Super Bowls, not this year's, obviously, but the two before that, it's like you talk about their offense. And, you know, I I said it, I believe, going into the San Francisco Super Bowl, I said you could put a track team out there with Patrick Mahomes and that offense will work. And now Mm. all of a sudden they've got, you know, some bigger guys, Juju, Valdez, Scantling. They've got possession receivers instead of track stars. And you have to like rewrite the play. Valdez is still still a speedster guy. I think they're bringing him in to try to fill the void of Tyreek Hill's absent. He's just a bigger version, not as fast, but just, you know, right up under Tyreek Hill's speed. And then he has the ability to go up and get the ball because he's like, I believe, like 6'3, 6'4. He's got so, good size, um, yeah. Yeah, he's got good size. So they've changed things up. And it'll be interesting to see what Andy Reid can do to kind of, you know, bring that offense into the to the future of what it's going to be because I think I think everybody has been beating at the table to get them to run the ball more right to be more balanced on offense uh, because you know playing backyard football where Patrick Mahomes is just leaving the pocket all the time and not staying in the pocket and his mechanics have not been well not been really good uh we saw it come and bite them in the butt in the AFC championship game in the second half and we saw it multiple times throughout the year when they've struggled. They struggled in the second half versus Cincinnati during the regular season. There was a stretch of like seven to eight games where they were barely putting up like 17 points. So I think this will have Patrick Mahomes and the offense sit back, look, self-scout themselves and say, well, we need to – well, Patrick would be like, well, I need to get better in my mechanics, right, because I can't just leave the pocket. And, you know, I have a, a arm that was blessed by God, and I can't just, you know, really rely on that 24 sevens, right? I got to do the simple things good, right, really hone in on my fundamentals – during the offseason and you know that way I could stay in the pocket and be able to make those easy throws not try to always evade and leave the pocket maybe we can be more balanced and run the football offense you know maybe we could use more play action pass and, and get you know Juju Smith-Schuster on intermediate routes Travis Kelsey on intermediate routes we still got McCall Hartman he could be a speed guy for us and so can Marquez Valdez-Scantling so maybe we could just be a little bit more balanced but it's going to come back to them really digging in, going back to the fundamentals to really have their offense flourish in this new offense that they potentially will run. Yeah, absolutely. So now you look, Tyreek's out of the AFC West. Devontae's in. We didn't even talk about the Broncos or Chargers at all. Obviously, Russ to (laughs) Denver. The Chargers finally might have a competent defense on the field. That division is incredible. I mean, you could have all four teams. It wouldn't be crazy to say that they could all make the playoffs. So what's the landscape of that division in your eyes now? If you were to rank those teams, who's the top dog to you? 
Yeah, my, my top team, I'm riding with 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 Jay Herbo, man, and the Chargers, man. Justin Herbert is oh. – like, he just has not gotten enough credit. And, and granted, right, they were one game out of the playoffs last year, um, partly because their coach was a little aggressive certain times throughout the year. Uh, they had a real opportunity to get into the playoffs the last week of the season with a tie, and their defense couldn't make a stop. Um, but I think what they've done, right, being able to bring Mike Williams back, having all that draft capital, right, this is what you have to do if you're a team like the Chargers. You still got your quarterback on a rookie deal, right? You got to put as many pieces around him, right, when you think he's as blessed as he is as a player and can potentially take you over the top. You have to really put talent around him and take advantage of that because when he hits the market as far as getting paid as a quarterback, you're not going to be able to do what the Chargers were able to do this offseason in free agency being able to bring in a guy like J.C. Jackson, who should have been the highest paid corner, and this is another conversation. It's just ridiculous that because he was an undrafted free agent, he couldn't reset the market. That pisses me off. You're talking about 17 interceptions the last two years. There's no way that this guy shouldn't reset the market at the cornerback position, but I digress, right? They struggled stopping the run. They couldn't stop a nosebleed in the run game last year, Joe. So what do they do? They get Dave from the LA Rams who was hurt came back in the Super Bowl and also their coach Brandon Stanley is very familiar with him played with him at the LA Rams he's a really good run defender and also Austin Jackson from the New York Giants who was an underrated free agency signing for the Giants last year really good run defender gives you a little bit pass rush day gives you a little bit more pass rush uh Sheldon uh Sheldon Day at not Sheldon Day but uh Sebastian Sebastian Day yeah gives you a little bit more pass rush but they also both really good run defenders, right? And that's where the Chargers struggled. And then they traded for another bookend, right, in Khalil Mack. Now you pair him with Bosa on the other side, Joey Bosa on the other side. Now you got four really good defensive linemen. You got two uh, defensive ends that can hunt and get after the quarterback. And that's what was what Joey Bosa was missing, especially after Melvin Ingram left the Chargers. He needed another bookend to help him out in pass rush, and now they have that on defense. So we know what this offense can do, right? It's it's very balanced with running the ball with Austin Eckler, and he's a really good receiving back out of the backfield. And Keenan Alley and Mike Williams on the outside, you know, are really good guys at the receiver position. You got a, a 1A and 1B at receiver, and you have a really good young quarterback who I think is a top five quarterback in this league. So to me, it's the Chargers. And then I would have to go, uh, I would have to say, I would have to go Kansas City Chiefs. You can't disrespect them like that. Yes, they lost Tyreek Hill, but this is a team I, that I believe has been the four straight AFC championship games. So they'll figure it out. You know, Patrick Mahomes and the offense will reinvent themselves and they'll get it together. And that defense actually was playing well down the stretch last year. Now they did lose Ward at the cornerback position. So it'll be interesting to see what they do at the cornerback position. I think Sorsen left too. I don't think too many people are crying about him leaving in free agency because <laughs> he had his struggles. <laughs> they had his struggles in coverage throughout the year and in the playoffs last year. And, uh, you know, Tyron Matthew is a free agent right now too. So it'll be interesting, right? They lost two. They're losing two of their top three safeties potentially in one of their starting corners. So on the defensive side, everybody's talking about them, you know, drafting receiver. Well, they, you know, paid Marquez, 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 Valdez Scantling, I can see them going defensive defensive backfield in the first round, either safety or corner to really sure up that secondary because right now they're struggling. And even at their corner, Mike Hughes left in free agency and time somewhere else. So they're really thin at the cornerback position right now. So it'll be interesting to see how they address that during the draft or, or maybe get some of these veterans that are still in the street or trade somebody via free agency. I heard Stefan Gilmore is a guy they've, they're really high on. 
James Bradbury from the Giants. I know your team is a guy that they potentially want to trade for. So it'll be interesting to see what the Kansas City Chiefs do in that secondary. I think that's more of a void right now than the receiver position. Yeah. And then three, uh, it's tough. It's like the Raiders went to the playoffs last year and they got significantly better with Devontae Adams and also getting Chandler Jones to pair with Max Crosby on the other side. So it's like hard not to say the Raiders there uh, and people will probably give me like, how the heck can you not, would you put the Broncos last? It's honestly because I'm not sure what Russell Wilson we're getting, right? That's the big question mark for the last year and a half. The, the Russell Wilson we've seen hasn't been that good. And the times that Seattle's had success is when they've been more balanced and they've run the football, like the last four weeks of the season, Rashad Penny kind of took off. I believe he led the league in rushing yards the last four weeks of the season. Yeah. That's why Seattle Seahawks had success the last four weeks of the season. But all this let Russ Cook thing, well, the Seattle Seahawks have never been good when they let Russ Cook, right? It started off really well in 2020. The first eight weeks of the season, they averaged over 30 points. But then the last eight weeks of the season, they were averaging, I believe, under 20, 21 points a game. And, you know, the offense just couldn't have find a good balance. They couldn't get going on offense. So, and in the beginning of this year, it wasn't really well either. And then, you know, Russell got hurt and took him a few games to get back right. And the offense still didn't look good. And the last couple of weeks of the season, the offense looked better when Rashad Penny was running the football. So, you know, they have a really good back in Javante Williams right now. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, Nathaniel Hackett came out, the head coach for the Broncos, and said, we're going to tell the offense to Russ, but what does that mean? So that's the question mark I have. Like, what do you mean by your telling the offense to Russ because you have a really good running back that ran for over 900 yards, splitting carries down the middle with Melvin Gordon. You do have three really good receivers and four, if you want to put Hamler in that equation as well, but are you going to just drop back and pass and, and go three, four wide because Russ struggled in Seattle when they did that. So it will be interesting to see. Yeah. And, and I'm with you as far as having the Broncos possibly at the bottom of that division. It, it just, it was hard for me to imagine why Russ wanted to go to Denver when you're going from what was the toughest division last year in the NFL to the toughest now, division this the toughest, year exactly. in the NFL. But I do want to talk about a different Bronco, probably a former Bronco in a couple of weeks, Melvin Gordon, because you're yeah. pounding the table trying to get him to Man. the Jets. Why do you see him as such a valuable piece on the Jets when you guys have a young stud in the backfield like Michael Carter? Well, that's the issue. There's a young stud there, but like when he became the feature back, he got banged up, right? And missed most of the bottom half of the season I think he missed the last three or four games so I love Michael Carter right shorter back built like a a, a small boulder um he gets lost a lot of times behind a lot the line of scrimmage people can't find him but he's a tough runner too and he's also versatile to catch the ball in the backfield I just think Melvin Gordon we saw when he was paired with Javante Williams what he did right back-to-back 900-yard seasons once with him, and then the year before, I believe, with Philip Lindsay, he still went over 900 yards and eight rushing touchdowns. I think they just need a bigger physical back to complement Michael Carter, right? A guy for short yardage. They they really struggled in short yardage situations last year as far as third and one and fourth and one situations running the football. I think a guy like Melvin Gordon will elevate the offense in doing that. And he's comfortable in this offense. He's been in this offense before. So he's a guy that can, you know, get one cut, get downhill in his zone scheme slash, you know, stretch scheme that Michael Ford likes to run. And he's also a viable pass catcher out of the backfield as well. So he's not as good as Michael Carter catching the ball, but he's a viable pass catcher out of the ball, out of the backfield. I just think he makes the most sense to pair with Michael Carter because 
He's a reliable back, has been healthy, and he's going to get you those tough yards when the Jets need it on third and one and fourth and one. And again, they struggled in those situations last year. So Michael Carter, I love him. I'm not sure he's ready to be a feature back where he's getting 20 to 25 touches a game. And he's going to, is he going to be able to withstand the grunt of getting that, you know, every single week for 17 weeks? I think you pair him with a guy like Melvin Gordon and you give Michael Carter, whether it's run or pass a combined 15 touches a game. And then you give Melvin Gordon 10 to 12 touches a game. I think that'd be a great one, two punch for the New York Jets. Yeah, I think you're a thousand percent right. If both of those guys get 12 to 15, you know, people like to write Melvin Gordon off for some reason. The guy is so I don't like- understand the, dis- the, dis- the disrespect he gets. Like, it's baffling to me. And I know Melvin personally. We've, we've trained together down here in Miami. And I remember there was a list midway through the season or maybe towards the back end of the season. I was talking about top running backs that would be free agents. And he wasn't even on the list. They had Cordell Patterson, a guy that's a receiver slash running back on the list before him. They had Sonny Michelle on the list before him, Chase Edmonds, James Conner. And, and I get it. Chase Edmonds is a young guy going, he was in his rookie contract going into free agency. James Conner, I believe had the most rushing touchdowns last year, Yeah, but that can be misconstrued too, because they gave him the ball a lot of times on the one, two yard line. So granted, you still got to get in the end zone. So I respect him for doing what he's supposed to do, but a lot of that was tailored for him to have success because he got the ball you know, right around the one to you. And I honestly believe that Melvin Gordon might've had more rushing yards than him. And James Conner probably had more snaps than him. So like the disrespect that Melvin Gordon gets, I, I literally don't get it. Right. And people are talking about his injury prone. Like the year that he missed a lot of games was the year he was holding out. It wasn't even injury based. So I'm like, yeah. people, you have to do your research. <laughs> this guy is a consummate pro who has played at least 16 games or 15 games. I think the last three or four years, besides the one year, he was holding out to get a bigger contract from the Chargers, end up leaving and going to Denver. Um, but like this guy, the last two years has gone over 900 yards, had eight rushing touchdowns. Like guys will kill it to have that as their running back one. And he right. did that splitting carries. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I love him. You know, I actually interviewed him. He was one of the first guys I ever had on my show back when we met Minneapolis. I had yeah. Super Bowl 52 and the entire interview, he was he was uh, eating a bag of Cheetos. And it sounds just, like him. That's just one of the best yeah. memories I have of the guy. I mean, that's something I'll never forget. Let's talk about your Jets uh, before we wrap this up. It just came out. I, I don't know if I actually mm. read this. I might have read this on your Twitter, actually, that okay. they're going to put Tomlinson at left yeah. guard, his true position, and slide Vera Tucker over to right guard. Now, Elijah Vera Tucker had a really good rookie year, was playing okay. on the left side of the line. I'm curious, Lejay. What does that do to you as a second-year guy when you were successful year one in one position to then have to slide over to a new position? I know it's, you know, the offensive line, you can plug and play a lot of these guys, but is that a challenge? How do you feel about that? I would I would ask you this question, Joe. What does it do to Lincoln Thompson, a nine-year vet who's coming off a of Pro Bowl and has only played left guard in the NFL to try to make him go to the right, right? Vera Tucker's a young guy, Yeah, um, missed most of training camp, right? So he missed a lot of reps there. Played left guard this whole season, I believe. Missed one, maybe two games during the season. Um, and this is a guy coming out of college that played left tackle, played right guard, played left guard, played right tackle. So he has the position of versatility. So I would just like people to put their well, – get in the shoes of Lincoln Thomason, a guy who, who mentally and physically and – has played only this left guard position, right? So now you're asking him to change his mental mentality as far as 
what leg he steps at, right? What's his post leg? What's his kick leg? What angles he's taking in the run blocking game? Now he has to flip that up, and he's been doing it for almost a decade just in one spot. So uh, to me, it's obvious that it's a lot easier for Elijah Vera Tucker to do that than a guy that's been doing it for nine years. And I actually talked to Lincoln Thomason about that, and, and I, you know, he was like, I would do whatever the coach asked me to do, but he was like, I'm going to talk to him. I, I'd, I'd rather, you know, stay at left guard. And to me, you have a, a Pro Bowl-type guy like, why would you even chance moving him to the, the right side when you have a young guy like Elijah Vera Tucker who has shown that he has versatility? It's not like he's been in that spot for three years. He's literally only been in it for one, right? And he missed most of training camp with an injury. So literally, you're talking about like 17 weeks and a little bit of OTAs at the left guard position. Like, I think he'll be fine. And then, granted, if they move Makai Becton to right tackle, you get what you want anyway. You get Elijah Vera Tucker and Makai Becton on the same side. That's what everybody, you know, was pounding the table for. They wanted to have a really strong line with them two on one side. And you potentially could get that if they move Makai Becton to the right. So I think it's just obvious, right, because it's hard for you to ask a, a nine-year vet going into his 10th year, coming off a of Pro Bowl, to change and go to the other side when he's only played that position in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And Leger, this is why you're the NFL vet, the analyst, and the expert, and why I ask you the questions. It's you know, because yeah, I, yeah I was... <laughs> like it was it was startling to me that people were upset about it. And I'm like, like it just makes logical sense, not even football sense, it just makes logical sense for him to stay at the position he's been most comfortable with for his whole career. Like Elijah Vera Tucker's a young guy. That's usually what happens when a young guy comes in, like they get moved over. Like, and again. He showed so much versatility at USC where he he was able to play multiple positions, and he's not far removed from that. You really want a veteran to move over, which Lincoln Thomas is a great dude. He would have did it in a heartbeat if the coaching staff was adamant about it, right? But to me, it just – it would have minimized the strength of your offensive line. Like, you have a guy that's been dominant at left guard. Let him stay at left guard. Like, his mental, you know, makeup, his physical makeup has all been left guard work. So, angles in the run game, uh, pass protection, right, learning how to, you know – have that post foot be your right foot instead of switching it around. And that kick leg has been his left leg this whole time. And the angles he takes in pass protection have all been on the left side. So he would have had to relearn all that this season to go to the right side. He's a vet and a consummate pro, so he would have done it. But, like, why? Why would you do that? Yeah, it it makes total sense. Look, the Jets' offensive line has gotten a lot better this offseason. You know, just, I think, from guys like Becton and Barry Tucker getting older, then you bring in Tomlinson. We'll see what they do in the draft. So before I let you go, Leger, what is your dream draft for the Jets? It's so tough um, because I think NFL teams let you know how they feel about one quarterbacks and potentially this offensive line from what they did in free agency, right? There was a lot of turnover in free agency with the quarterback position and the quarterback carousel, right? Russell Wilson, you know, leaving, Matt Ryan leaving, Carson Wentz leaving, Mitch Trubisky going to Pittsburgh. Um, and these were all potential teams that needed quarterbacks, right? So now they're out of the quarterbacking business. I think they kind of let you know how the scouts and GMs kind of feel about this draft class at the quarterback position. And then if you look at teams that needed offensive line help, this was a deep interior offensive line for agency group, right? So we saw a lot of turnover there. We saw Brandon Sheriff go to Jacksonville and get paid a boatload of money. Cam Robinson got the franchise tag, which I thought was ultimately the smartest thing Jacksonville did out of all the moves they made because they paid a lot of money to a lot of people yeah. this offseason. We saw Teron Armstead, you know, make his way to the Miami Dolphins. 
Um, we saw Lincoln Thomason leave San Francisco and go to Jacksonville. So teams that were in the top that potentially could have went O-line, I think they kind of let you know that they were more comfortable taking a, a veteran that has been proven to play at a high level in the NFL. So now you're looking at the the draft, right, to just pick number four. At number one, you got to almost pencil in Aiden Hutchinson now because of what they did with their offensive line in Jacksonville. And there's still more work to be done. And they could still potentially, potentially get – uh, Iki Kwanu, but I think they've helped Trevor Lawrence so much on offense as far as the weapons they've brought in on offensive line, you know, resigning Cam Robinson with the franchise tag, bringing in Zay Jones, bringing in Christian Kirk. Um, they've paid so many dudes on offense. The only big signing they really had was Foley Fadakoski from the Jets at the nose tackle position on defense. Yeah. So um, I think they have to go and help Josh Allen get another bookend, right? He's been getting beat up with double and triple teams ever since, you know, Ndokwe left and Calais Campbell left. He needs another bookend rush. And, you know, the NFL is run by passers and pass rushers. So they, they have to help him out. So I think Aiden Hutchinson is almost penciled in at the number one spot. Number two and three is where it gets tricky, right? The Detroit Lions, there was rumors that they really like Malik Willis. I, I for sure, I don't like to say for sure. I 95% am sure that there's no way they're taking him that high at number two. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, do they go Kayvon Thibodeau, right? Because they need edge rush. They signed Charles uh, Harris back, but they still need another edge rusher on the outside. And again, this, the league is run by passers and pass rushers. So that's what they need. The offensive line is kind of solidified in Detroit, right? Um, then you go to the number three spot, the Houston Texans, right? Lermy Tunsil restructures is going to be there. Tyrus Howard, they took him a few years ago in the first round. They moved him to guard. Looks like they may move him back to right tackle. So does that take Evan Neal or Iki Kwanu out of the equation again? Because before everybody was just sure they were going to go maybe one and two or one and three some way. So now the Jets are at the number four spot and they're like, hold on, we could get either Neil or Iki now, or we could even get maybe a Jermaine Johnson at the number four spot, depending how the, you know it falls out. So they're in a they're in a predicament because I think. Before free agency, everybody assumed that Neil or Equana would be gone at four. Maybe both of them, but one for sure. So I think the Jets were hoping that one goes before. That way they can maybe fleece some picks out of the Giants. I know that's your, that's your team. <laughs> but the Giants need offensive line help in the worst way. In yeah. the worst, in the worst way. So if only one of those guys are there, do they call the Giants and be like, hey, you know, we're going to take Equana or we're going to take Neil. What are you willing to give up? to jump ahead of us and maybe just like a third round pick because you're only moving back one spot. Mm-hmm. So um, I just think Jermaine Johnson most likely will not be there at 10. So it comes down to Joe D's draft board. And this is why I keep telling everybody on Twitter, like every team has a draft board, right? And if he quantos his number one overall player and he falls the floor, Joe D's going to be hard pressed not to take him. Right. Because it's all about, you know, equating talent and getting talent on your roster, not for this year, not just for this year, but for the this foreseeable future. Right. So then at the 10 spot, do the Jets potentially maybe trade up because they have a lot of draft capital in the second round and third round. Do they trade up to get, you know, a guy like Jermaine Johnson if he doesn't fall to 10? Because yeah, I think in between that pick, the Atlanta Falcons need edge rush. They can potentially pick him. The Giants with their second pick could potentially pick him because they need edge rush work. They can go two offensive linemen, which I think they should do in the first round. The yeah. Giants should go two offensive linemen. Charles Cross is there, and a guy like Neil or Equano is there. Take both of them. I'm right? with you. I'm with you, you. Help, you helping solidify your offensive line for the next, like, 10 years. It's a no-brainer to me. But, again, they need somebody to pair with Aziz Ozolari. you got to be able to get to the quarterback. Then you can move Leonard Williams back inside where he's more comfortable rushing inside over guards. 
Um, and then, like I said, the the Carolina Panthers need offensive line help. So I just think there's going to be a run on edge rushers in O-line. I know Jet Nation is leery because they're like, we need a number one receiver. Receivers are going to fall. Like, I love Christian Watson, and I think he may still slip to the second round. Like, I I, I love the kid. I hope he does go in the first round because he deserves it. I have him as a first-round pick. And in my latest draft, I have him as a late first-round pick. I have him as a late first-round pick during Senior Bowl, and everybody looked at me crazy. So a lot of people have him as a third-round pick. But then he went out there and ran that sub 4-4 four, four at 6-4. Now everybody everybody loves him now, right? Uh, but I saw what I saw on tape already. I knew he was explosive. So, I mean, it's, it's just interesting to see what the Jets can do. Do they stay pat at 4-10 and 10 and then use some of their second-round picks to move back into the first round to potentially get a receiver? I have none of the receivers in this draft class I have as a top-10 pick. So just reaching for a need will hurt you in the long run. And I want everybody to think about that. And, I, and I've had this conversation with Jet Nation. Just because you have a need at a position doesn't mean you reach and get a guy. At the end of the day, you got to get talent on your roster, right? Build talent on your roster and then being able to pick a position at the right time where a guy falls where he should go in the draft, right? You don't want to reach too early on a guy. Um, I've heard, you know, Garrett Wilson or, or Drake London at 10. I don't have any of those guys as a top 10 pick. Uh, Garrett Wilson is the most complete receiver in this draft class. Drake London is a good 50-50 jump ball contested guy, uh, intermediate route guy, basketball background, could back guys down. But I don't think either one of those guys are a top 10 pick. Well, Leger, I mean, either way, it doesn't seem like the Jets are going to strike out here. The offensive line's already improved, two top 10 picks. It's going to be a fun year for Jet Nation. Zoom's telling me I got 45 seconds before they kick us <laughs> off the call. So as always, man, thank you so much for joining the show. Of course. Thanks for having me, Joe. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. Leger Doosable's got the best takes around the NFL. We'll be right back with my final word on the 60th episode of Serralo Sports Talk. All right, it's time for my final word here on this 60th episode of Serralo Sports Talk. And what an incredible spot right there with Leger Doosable. I mean, I couldn't think of anyone. When I said, you know what, this is episode 60, I need a guest that I've got great rapport with, a guy who I know can just really take the spotlight, who knows his stuff, who can talk about anything. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer, right? It's always, when in doubt, it's Leger. Great spot there by one of the best guys I know. We've got life news to get to, but first, I want to touch on a little baseball. Haven't talked about baseball in a whole ass minute on this show. Let's do a little baseball. I'm not going not gonna to get too deep into it. I'm not even going to go division by division with my preseason picks. I'm just going to tell you right now what I think the World Series is going to look like. I think it's a Mets-Blue Jays World Series this year. I cannot wait for this upcoming baseball season. The DH is universal. My Mets, the New York Mets, have two of the best three. I mean, that's the consensus. I'd say two of the best two starting pitchers in baseball. Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer. You're not going to find a better one-two punch anywhere. The Toronto Blue Jays are a juggernaut. I mean, they have such a young core and nucleus, and they're only getting better. Add in Matt Chapman to that group. You know, Vladdy had an MVP quality, an MVP caliber season a year ago. Their pitching is so much improved. I think that the Toronto Blue Jays are better than the Red Sox. I think they're better than the Yankees. I think they're better than the Rays. To me, the Toronto Blue Jays are the best team in the best division in baseball. And I think that they're the team that's going to emerge from the American League this year. Now, it's, I think, actually going to be a little easier for the Blue Jays than it will be for the Mets because 
The Mets still have a tough division. You've got the reigning champs, for Christ's sake, the Atlanta Braves. The Phillies have a hell of a lineup. And then, of course, you've got, you know, I think one team that might be more complete than the Mets, that might be, is probably better than the Mets in their league, and that's the Dodgers. So, you know, I believe firmly the Blue Jays are the best team in the American League. The Mets, as much as I love them, and they're my pick to win the World Series this year, I don't know if they're the best team in the National League. The Dodgers are probably a better team. But the Dodgers went out last year, got Scherzer, ended up not making the World Series with him. Starting pitching is what it all comes down to in the postseason. It's why the Dodgers went out and got Scherzer when they already had the best team on paper in baseball. It's why the Mets got Max Scherzer. Because last year, starting pitching with injuries and whatnot fell to shambles for the Mets. Marcus Stroman had a great year. He's gone. Taiwan Walker had a great year. I hope he replicates what he did. But he's our fourth starter going into this year. Let's talk about Chris Bassett for a minute, right? This is an all-star. This is a guy who on most teams would be a high two, if not a you know low-end ace. And with the Mets, he's their third starter. The bullpen, losing Familia, takes a hit. Really upsets me. There's still room to improve in the bullpen, whether it's a late free agent signing a la Tony Watson, the lefty, or a trade at some point in the season. But the starting rotation is incredible. The back end of the bullpen looks so solid. Edwin Diaz had a great year. If you look at Edwin Diaz's season, his his ERA got inflated in a couple non-save situations. He came in one example, the four-run game back in May against Philadelphia. Comes in in the ninth inning up four, gives up a grand slam. Edwin Diaz in a non-save situation, his ERA is through the roof. In save situations last year, he was lights out. He's a closer, right? That's his job. And I don't think Buck Showalter is going to mismanage him the way Luis Rojas did. You've got Diaz at the back end of that bullpen with Trevor May and Seth Lugo probably alternating the eighth inning role depending on the given night. That is a damn good back end of the bullpen. And the lineup, I mean, Pete Alonso, Mr. You know, 30, 40 home runs a year right? I think Jeff McNeil has a rebound year. Starling Marte was an incredible addition. James McCann can't be any worse than he was last year behind the plate. Two years ago was great for the White Sox. You know, I'm really banking on Jeff McNeil and Brandon Nimmo, a couple of homegrown guys who, you know, have shown that they can be 300 plus hitters. In Nimmo's case, a 400 plus OBP guy. You know, they're going to have to take the lead, but the middle of the lineup, you know, it's Marte who's got all five tools, pop, speed, you name it, he's got it great defensively. It's Alonzo, Eduardo Escobar, the addition. Mark Kana showed off his pop. And who am I missing? Francisco Lindor. I am expecting a 2006 Carlos Beltran type season, minus striking out on a curveball down the middle to end the year, from Francisco Lindor. Carlos Beltran, the Mets handed him a boatload of money in 2005, going into the 05 season after he led the Astros on that incredible run to the World Series, and uh, or rather to the NLCS in 04, where they lost to the Cardinals, the Mets got Beltron, and in 05, he underperformed. And he was hated, and the media crushed him, and the fans killed him. And then in 2006, Carlos Beltron ties a Mets then record with 41 home runs, and was absolutely sensational, MVP caliber. Problem is, in 06 that the Mets had four guys that could have won an MVP award. They had Delgado, Beltran, David Wright, Jose Reyes. They all took away from one another because they were all sensational. So Carlos Beltran goes out in 06 in year two. Team goes to game seven of the NLCS. I think we're going to get a similar result, a similar season out of Francisco Lindor. He showed it down the stretch. August and September, 
he was hot as hell. He was pound for pound the best shortstop offensively in baseball in August and September. I mean, what he did primetime against the Yankees, that three home run game going shot for shot, dinger for dinger with Giancarlo Stanton and getting the final word and the last laugh in that one. That's where I think Francisco Lindor picks up. If you watched him the other day in that game where DeGrom and Scherzer split their time, Lindor homered from each side of the plate. He looks spot on from each side of the plate. He had three hits in that game, two home runs in a single. His exit velo on all three of those hits was at least 104 miles per hour on every hit. Francisco Lindor has looked as locked in as anyone this spring. And with him, Alonzo, Marte, you know, you only need McNeil and Nimmo to be the fourth, fifth best hitters in your lineup. Robbie Cano comes back in primarily, uh, most likely a DH role. And, you know, let's not shit on Robinson Cano too much, right? The guy can hit. Do I want him at second base every day? God, no. But the guy can hit and he can hit gap to gap and he can hit for power. And if he's a platoon DH, your team's probably better off because of it. You probably have a damn good team if Robinson Cano is not needed in the lineup every day. Not the field, but the lineup. So I think at the end of the day, it all reverts back to the starting pitching. I think the Mets are more than competent offensively, bullpen, defensively this year, which will be a huge adjustment for them up the middle. I mean, they've improved so much going from what they had in 2019, 2020 to now having McCann, Lindor, and Marte or Nimmo up the middle, whatever they do in center field. Such an improvement. But at the end of the day, it comes back to starting pitching. In 2015, the New York Mets had the worst record of the five National League teams that made the playoffs. They went to the World Series that year because they had the best starting pitching. This year, the Mets will probably, I foresee them having the best starting pitching in the National League. Can the Dodgers rival them? Can the Dodgers compare? Absolutely. Do the Mets, I think, at the end of the day have the edge? Yeah, I think the Mets have the two best pitchers in baseball at the end of the day. So I would consider that a pretty sizable edge, if you ask me. I mean, their number four starter, Taiwan Walker, was an all-star last year. You've got four all-stars, and then you've got Carlos Carrasco, who was he awful last year, no doubt about it, in about the two, three months that he played, he was terrible. But Carlos Carrasco has been an all-star. He's had years of a 2.6 ERA, where he looks fantastic. I don't think he's the same guy anymore, I truthfully don't, but if he's your fifth starter, if he's your back-end guy, your rotation's in damn good shape. I'm going Mets over Blue Jays with just over a week to go to bring in the MLB season. And now, to close the show, to end my final word, I have some incredible life news that some of you may already know. Others may be hearing this for the first time, but everything has kind of happened at once. I have taken two new jobs. One started this week. Another starts in three weeks. The one that started this week is with Believe. The network that you hear this show on, every time you listen to this show, the first thing you hear is that this is on the Believe network. Do you believe I believe. I'm working for Believe now. I'm working not only as a host, which I already do, but as a talent manager, bringing in new shows, new talent, new hosts and athletes to the network. And I am so over the moon excited to get started in this company that has been good to me, that I've known for almost four years, and that I believe in. I cannot wait to be a part of that. The other job in three weeks, I'll be a sports betting analyst for Betfully, which is a sports betting startup out of San Diego. So I'll be helping them create a ton of content daily in the sports betting department. And, well, Believe is out of Los Angeles. Betfully is out of San Diego. That means I'll be moving to Los Angeles in about two, two and a half weeks, folks. I am relocating the kid who grew up in the shadow of New York City 
spent all of his time, except for college, really, uh, on Long Island or in Manhattan, where I've recently lived. I'll be headed out to LA, moving out there April 15th, and just like how I start off most shows, I can't wait. Going from New York to LA, the Big Apple, to the West Coast, I'm ecstatic, I'm thrilled, and to round this out, to give you all the last piece of life-changing, incredible, great news, I will be making my national radio debut this weekend. Stay tuned for more updates on specifics. Not sure if it's going to be Saturday or Sunday yet, what time exactly, but it'll be midday this weekend on Sports Map Radio with Soralo Sports Talk. I can't wait. That's right. The next time you folks hear this show, it will be on a national radio platform on Sports Map Radio. And I think that's a pretty good way to round this up. So just like that, this episode of Soralo Sports Talk, episode 60 is up. It's over. It's out of here. Thank you so much to my loyal listeners. Guys, it only took 60 episodes. We're going the national radio route the next time you hear this show. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.